Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast with Andrew Teacher. I'm delighted to be joined this week all the way from Boston, Massachusetts by Nick Cassaro, who's Vice President for Life Science Development at Bentall Green Oak, one of the world's biggest private equity investors in real estate. Nick, thank you for joining us. Thank you for beaming in all the way from Boston. Let's start with a bit of an elevator pitch for Bentall Green Oak, for BGO as it's known, one of the world's biggest private equity investors. You were ranked seventh by funds raised over the last five years last year. But give us a bit of an elevator pitch on the business and then we'll go into your role in life sciences and your experience in Big Pharma. Yeah, first off, thank you for having me. A little bit about Bentall Green Oak. It has a history over 100 years in terms of the two companies that merged together in 2019 between Green Oak and Bentall Kennedy, which now spans across 14 countries with 28 cities as an international firm. As a part of BGO, there are various asset types throughout the world. Specifically, my job here is to focus on the life science asset type here in the U.S., And And that can sit within any of those different strategies, right? That's correct. There are obviously different product types like office, industrial, cold storage, multifamily, single family. Those are those types of product types, but there are various funds that have the appetite to support those different product types. And those do that at different stages, right? So you've got core, core plus, value add, debt, secondaries, co-investment and separate account strategies. And each of those may take a slice of a life science or a commercial office scheme in different phases, potentially. That's correct. And in terms of AUM, you currently have around 83 billion US dollars of assets under management, many, many different countries, cities, and over 750 institutional clients. That's correct. In terms of the life sciences part of it, obviously in the UK, this has been a boom Over the last two years, really, it's really kind of got going since the pandemic. Across Europe, it's still a very nascent sector. And we're looking in the UK very much to Boston as the North Star for where this sector is going. And whilst it's fair to say that certain asset classes like retail and office are in cold storage themselves, life census is very much on the up. So in terms of your role within BGO, Tell us about what you do and tell us about BGO's track record in this space, because it's actually one of the world's biggest investors into labs and life science-based real estate. First off, my position at Bentall Green Oak is specific to life science development. We work within a team here at BGO. So there is a group of us that I have a small sliver in that supports our investments in our conviction into the life science space. As you kind of mentioned, you know, we are an investor, we are a believer in the life science space, not here just in the US, but also in the UK with the European team making investments in that market. We're a unified group that has specialty in acquisitions, development, asset management that make us a fortified group to make sure that these types of assets, although complex, along with our tenants in their needs are complex, but that we're delivering a product that they can use day one for their operation. In terms of my background, I mentioned Boston. Boston has been kind of the mecca for life sciences here for, it feels like my lifetime, and really kind of 
out in the forefront of supporting the life science sector. You know, when this boom started, it was very under-researched and under-commercialized in terms of products for cures to support the human race, right? There was under, when the boom started, less than 10% of cures that were identified. Well, it started in a traditional real estate kind of way didn't it because the genesis of this is about the same age as me it's from the early 80s correct it was when the u.s changed the law that enabled universities to start to commercialize their research and that essentially said to academics right you can make money from all of your massive brain power at which point some of them said, well, why would we want to make money? We're virtuous academics. And other people rubbed their hands together and said, yes, thank you very much, US government. We'll do exactly that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but Boston, from how we've been led to believe, was not an accidental hotspot for this because it's always had great academic institutions. But a lot of the original real estate, a lot of the land that was regenerated and built up into labs was relatively sort of bare industrial space that was just bloody cheap, basically, like a lot of great developments over the years. It was an unused, unwanted bit of land next to a load of roads and things. And someone thought, well, this is a bloody great big place to build some labs. Let's get on and do it. This goes back actually to the 60s, right? So Kendall Square was an old manufacturing site, right? Candies, you know, it was big for Neko. It was big for the Tootsie Roll and a bunch of other types of manufacturing. Kendall Square was, to your point, just surface parking lots and industrial brick and beam. John F. Kennedy, you know, the president at the time had aspirations for NASA to be located in Kendall Square. You know, obviously he was assassinated and NASA ended up in Houston. And to your point, in the 1980s, there was Cambridge that wasn't used for anything. It was an empty space. So coincidentally, you have these two world-renowned institutions known as Harvard and MIT that really kind of used that space along with developers to kind of push forward based on the law that you had mentioned to kind of fortify that Kendall Square mecca that you hear about today. So that was really the beginning of it all in the 1990s and slowly transform and companies spun out into that Kendall Square space to companies that you hear and see today, you know, Biogen, Genzyme, which was acquired by Sanofi. Those companies, that's where they started. They started in Kendall Square and then became these worldwide companies. But, you know, it really started back in the 80s and 90s in Kendall Square. Mm. So we're essentially having academia as an anchor tenant. And over here in London, we think of the Crick Institute, a marvellous building that nobody would ever construct for commercial use. But it's a wonderful building that's essentially the hub for UK life sciences in London. We think about Cambridge, UK and Oxford, UK as being those other hubs and that sort of triangle, the golden triangle, as some call it is seen as where things are happening here. But I think we you know we in the UK, I always argue this a lot on these podcasts and in some of our research that we've produced with Savills, a report called Life Science Innovation that I've plugged before. But in those reports, we've talked about creating an arc between the UK and the US and thinking about wrapping in other cities. And I know, Nick, that you obviously work across all sorts of cities across North America and that because of how 
massively the US invests in private healthcare and pharmacy and how much certain institutions, particularly in states like Texas, have emerged over the decades. You've got some great hubs, not just in Boston, but in Texas, in San Diego, and right up and down every corner of the states, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at it, I'll say the top five major markets for life sciences are really based around medical schools or teaching hospitals or a good university. So take it outside of Boston. If you look at San Francisco, for example, you have Cal and you have Stanford. If you go to San Diego, you have Scripps Research, right? So if you go to those types of facilities, I mean, you could go down to the next four and five, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, that you have UPIT and you have the University of Penn and Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, right? So like, if you start looking at the five major hubs that are here in the US, you really, really see that it starts with what we would call meds and eds, right? You know, medical institutions, educational institutions that feed into the life science private sector by either research that's funded by the hospital or the institution, And they become so big and they grow out based on some indication or some research that they have. So there's an anchor at the heart of it. And yeah, this is a conversation we had recently with the chief executive of Leeds City Council in the north of England. Tom Reardon was talking about making Leeds a medical tech hub in Europe and anchored there by a major new hospital development that's being funded by the government in the UK essentially seeding a new level of regeneration. And what would be really interesting for you to give an overview of is how the dynamic of some of those cities is changing. Because again, we look at North America at the minute and we had Doug Jameson from Savills talking about the office market in New York the other week. And again, it seems like, as I said, to use that phrase, cold storage in a kind of sarcastic way, it does feel like there's an element of stasis in many areas of the commercial property market. But life sciences is the one sort of bright spot to almost speak of in many areas. Life science research cannot be done remotely. And that's what makes it unique. Science and math always evolve. It will continue to do that no matter if it's AI or not. You always have that. So you have to have that lab space. You have to have those types of computational spaces that you meet with, fume hoods, biosafety cabinets, those are items in the physical that can never be brought to the virtual, at least not yet. What I would tell you from a manufacturing standpoint to areas like Austin or areas like Raleigh, North Carolina, those types of processes, because they're repetitive continuously, those can be driven by AI, or they can be driven by some sort of automated monitoring system. And to follow that, they can be put in cheaper places. It's cheaper places. And those are typically places that aren't a traditional landlord lease, right? Like big pharma would want to own their own space because they don't want to have a specific amount of time for their manufacturing space. Once you build a manufacturing space for commercialized product, you know you're not moving for a while, right? You're there for at least a good 15 to 20 years, whereas in R&D space, you're growing and you're a very dynamic and fluid company. Once you have commercial product, like that's the end goal. So what you're saying is, is actually, because we talk about life sciences as a collective asset class, but what you're saying is there's a very different 
rationale and a very different structure of how you want space, depending on if you're a early stage Series B, Series C startup still in testing mode versus an established business that might want to be manufacturing powders, liquids, medical devices or whatever, who would basically want to be in that space forever. Yeah, that's correct. Depending on the size and complexity and where you are in the life cycle as a company really dictates on how you view real estate. If you're a small startup company, you want to be close to your institution that, you know, maybe you graduated from or you have some sort of alliance with. Once you grow into clinical trials or commercial grade manufacturing, you're less dependent on the institutions or being close to PhDs. Now, you may have it for your next drug or your next thing that you're trying to solve for. However, the product that you started with, you typically don't want to have in an urban setting, right? The facility types are very, very different in comparison to an R&D facility, to a GMP manufacturing facility. Mm. That seems a bit like it's a function of the maturity of the market in North America. And over here, to some extent, we have some large campus developments. We had Stuart Grant from Brookfield, the boss of ARC Group, which is Brookfield's multi-site asset operational platform in Britain. The most prominent of those is Harwell, which is known internationally for its energy and defense links. But those are all largely out-of-town campuses that have got huge amounts of scale to them. And obviously, a lot of what's in Boston is very central, urban, high-density development, much like Chicago, much like San Diego. For the benefit of people in the UK listening to this, Nick, can you explain how some of those secondary and tertiary cities have emerged? What I'm keen to try and bring into this thinking is that life doesn't begin and end in the UK of Oxford and Cambridge. Some people think if it's not Oxford, Cambridge, London, then it's not worth considering. And my view has always been that there's actually quite a lot of different elements to life science, R&D and tech that could bring into play, as you've described, other places for other uses. This is actually the unique part of the life science. There are subcategories of life sciences or sub-asset types that make up life Can you science. list them and explain the acronyms to people? Yeah, so R&D, which would be research and discovery. GMP, which is good manufacturing practices. It's actually built for commercial-grade manufacturing of a drug product. So either a cure or a solution for some type of disease. And then finally, it would be really based on GMP needs logistics, right? So raw materials or cold logistics or a little bit of both, right? Like those two kind of go hand in hand with one another. And obviously we're not talking about storing bananas. We're talking about storing tightly regulated chemicals and instruments that need a high level of security, a high level of efficacy in terms of the environment, the air pressure, the air quality, the temperature, stability, all of that sort of stuff, which is next level logistics, really. Yeah. So in a GMP facility and in a regulated logistics area, it's very built on air pressures, air changes, and security, right? Like how you walk about a GMP facility, you could be walking down a hallway and you forgot something, you can't turn around. You have to walk all the way around and effectively restart to where you came from. There are certain facilities that are called unidirectional flow. 
you cannot turn around in a hallway even though you just came from there like two seconds ago it's not permitted you have to walk all the way around and restart it's like a one-way street effectively mm. those are some of the regulations that you get into when just you just don't let any cyclists into those places i tend to ignore those one-way street yes yes but those are the <laughs> typical types of complexities when you get into commercial grade or clinical grade manufacturing or logistics those facilities have different dynamics of where they want to be so like r d facilities want to be in an urban setting traditionally and they want to be close to the institutions where they graduated from have alliances to as you further develop and go into clinical preclinical or commercial grade manufacturing you don't want to be in a high rise you want to be either in a single story or two story type facility based on the volume of what you're manufacturing for so those would warrant more of a suburban type of facility. You want to be in a place where you can have 18-wheelers show up whenever you have to ship, whenever the product's ready or it's at the right temperature. There's a lot more logistics that you're strung to than when in an R&D facility because those are built more based on an 8 to 5, whereas manufacturing could be a 24-7 logistical shipping all of those items that's really kind of the difference so to go back to your original question about the tertiary markets those are really built around accepting gmp the big r d markets i think are very well formed between boston philly dc san diego and san francisco however you know now you're seeing places like austin as you mentioned in houston if you look at that, the types of life science uses within those areas are really based on GMP, you know, commercializing product, having the ability to ship via train, plane, the type of product and where it needs to go based on, you know, temperature regulation. Some of these products have to be shipped cold. And I'll give you an example, the COVID vaccine had to be shipped and stored cold. That was kind of the logistical constraint. Not every product's like that, but that's how that works. Yeah, yeah. And that obviously has an impact on how these spaces are designed and delivered. So in your role developing this stuff, what are the sorts of things that you have to consider when you're constructing these facilities? And as an investor, how do you prioritize opportunities that come before you as BGO when you're looking at different opportunities what are the sorts of assets that you prefer because obviously some are going to come with different sorts of covenant strengths from others depending on the end occupier or the main leaseholder let's say how are you thinking around how much exposure you want to any of these sub-asset classes the first thing that we do as a team is we look at obviously the market and what type of science is being conducted there. It's actually not from a real estate perspective. It's actually from a science perspective. And what I mean by that is, just as I spoke, you know, Raleigh-Durham is more of a GMP market than an R&D market, right? So if we were looking at something, for example, that was in Raleigh-Durham and it was being sold as R&D, we might be less likely because of how that market functions, right? It's really based on how the science is really being conducted there. I'm going to make up an example. If it's a heavy chemistry market, 
why would we build biology, right? Like it's more than likely going to be a chemistry user that would be looking at a speculative space. Why build something different than what the market requires? So we typically look at asset types, regardless of owned or not owned. We look at it from the inside out based on market information rather than this is what BGO thinks. Because at the end of the day, we want to make it the most appealing to the folks that would use it and not have someone come in and be like, why does it look like this, right? This isn't what this market bears. This is not what this market does from a science perspective. So I think based on my background, those are the things that are the most important to us is to making sure that the right building is in the right market to support the science that's being conducted there. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of some of the different cities that we were talking about earlier, what is the dynamic across those cities? Obviously, we're heading into Q3 now, and in Europe, the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, to some degree, is a bit of a memory here, but I know that's still reverberating through the West Coast, and there are severe problems with the commercial office market, particularly in San Francisco. But then, you know, a few miles down the road, San Diego is booming and you're almost seeing that spillover from all of the tech bros that didn't go to Colorado, landed in San Diego, shoving up house prices to ridiculous levels. And San Diego really seems to be booming at the expense of San Francisco. What I would say in between San Francisco and San Diego is there's definitely a heavier tech to life sciences in San Francisco than there is in San Diego. What I would compare San Diego to is very comparable to what's going on in Boston. I don't mean that neither of those places uses tech, but there are more science food tech companies in San Francisco than there are in San Diego. So alternative meats, those are very prominent within the San Francisco market in life sciences than it is in San Diego in Boston. Boston has been typically a rare disease hub. Curing for rare diseases is the type of science that Boston has historically done. And that goes back to the roots of the 1980s and 1990s with Biogen and Shire and Genzyme were the original servers for rare disease cures. That's why it's very deep rooted in Boston. And I would say historically, the same goes for San Diego. They're more biology and chemistry based where San Francisco is more tech biology or tech chemistry. Now flip the coin and head towards the nation's capital in DC and Philadelphia. Those have been geared more towards vaccines. And that has something to do with the National Institute of Health, right? NIH. Those are things that they are very focused on for the general well-being of the country. Those are things that they would invest in closer to that part of the country. Mm. And to some degree, with everything that's happening in the broader economy, interest rates rising and that impacting people's ability to raise capital, not just in real estate, but across the board, particularly for startups and scale-ups. How is that impacting the life science arena? How is that impacting the real estate arena serving that category in terms of your ability to grow? If people can't raise funding for series B, series C businesses, how does that then impact real estate pricing? There are three sources of capital for a life science company. It's the venture capital, it's NIH funding through grants, 
And then there's also funding through big pharma. You know, big pharma in the last 10 years have all joined the venture world, either through their own venture business unit or they've gotten heavily involved in merger and acquisition. They're very keen on getting to the next wave of medicine. They've historically been focused on the drugs that they have patent for. If you look at the statistics over the next five years, a lot of the patents of the older drugs and the older technologies and how they're manufactured are coming close to expiring. We're going to see, and we are seeing right now, a lot of alliances and packs between big pharma and small startups based on the technologies and what they're solving for. Those are the budding relationship of more of an acquisition than a merger. To give you an example, it made headline nudes here because they were two Boston-based companies, Vertex and CRISPR. They have an alliance to work together to push through some of the things that they're both solving for, but have different ways of getting there. I mean, the big news at the end of quarter four in 2022 was Horizon and Amgen. Like Horizon had a new product with new technologies that Amgen was very keen on having in their portfolio. And we're going to see more of those. And that is from a real estate perspective, it's going to reset a bit where companies obviously are going to move into the big campuses if they are acquired but it's also going to allow for the ecosystem to continue to grow because right now it's very very hard to find space in certain areas that doesn't support growth sometimes it's good to be acquired and have new companies come to the forefront it really is supporting the ecosystem as a life science whole real estate or not and vertex is a great example of a british success story and one that's obviously flown the roost to the nasdaq as so many uk companies do i'm not quite sure why they like the nasdaq so much nick but if you could stop stealing all of our great companies and ipoing them over in the states that would certainly make people in London a bit happier, a CRISPR therapeutics, a business that was star was rising very, very quickly a couple of years ago. It's sort of flatlined out. The stock's gone down a lot over the last 18 months. But again, a lot of these companies are great white hopes over the sort of five, 10 year period, aren't they? And they'll make or break it on probably one or two products, if that. I'm interested in some of your background because you're obviously now working for one of the world's largest private equity real estate investors across many amazing projects, but you spent a lot of your career in the big pharma universe. And that's quite a rare alignment. I've been privileged to meet hundreds of people in life sciences over the few years that we've been working on our research piece and through our work with the likes of Biomed and Mission Street, which is one of your JV partners. We'll come on to Mission Street in a second. But I'm interested in the Nick Cassaro story to some extent, because it's quite a unique one. I think, and quite interesting. Yeah. So just to give you and your audience a little bit of a story about myself, you know, I started in the life science industry really as, it sounds crazy, as a summer intern in 2007, building a lab at Genzyme in Kendall Square. I was really focused on construction, building complex facilities, and ended up really gravitating to this crazy, crazy thing called life science. It obviously didn't make the press clippings. We didn't have a pandemic. We didn't have any of these things that 
really people were focused on. So I, you know, continued to build labs for Genzyme at the time and really had gravitated toward it. And over the years, worked at their Cambridge facility, their Alston Landing facility, which was their original commercial product called Cerazyme. So I worked there over the years, three or four years on those two locations. And then once they were acquired by Sanofi, I supported Sanofi throughout the Westboro, Northboro, and Framingham facilities for some of their needs in terms of clinical, commercial, and R&D. That was before the great boom, and then ended up working for a company heavily focused in process engineering, supported the first and second wave of advanced therapies, right? So the Moderna's, the gene therapies, the cell therapy companies of the world. And what did day-to-day look like? Obviously, everyone's now familiar with Moderna because of its COVID vaccine. But what were you doing day-to-day and how does that translate into working for BGO and supporting BGO's investors? Yeah, so a day-to-day there is really supporting their capital projects, right? So expanding, contracting, changing based on science needs. I'll give you an example, like places like Genzyme, those are very focused spaces. They're required for a very specific product. If those aren't required anymore, those spaces have to be demolished and redone And by doing that, you have to redesign, you have to do the construction, make sure that those spaces are built to the complex specification that's required by the governing body, you know, the regulated space. What does that translate today? My role today is really being able to sit down with our tenants or our future tenants and understand what's required before those tenants even show up, right? It's really making sure that our investments are based on what the end user will end up doing within that space. So you're a bit like a human AI. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I I guess. Uh, It's really working towards understanding what the scientist is going to need before the scientist shows up. Because if you think about their problem statement, their problem statement is, I need to move based on some sort of discovery, some sort of next step in terms of expansion. Well, we don't like to move. As the human race, no one enjoys moving. So from that standpoint, it's very hard for the daily interruption, your commute changes, the route that you go, the time that you leave the house to go to work, that all changes by moving. If we can minimize the impact that they have in the workspace, that will make moving and expanding and growing a company less stressful than it already is. So it's really kind of supporting the end user to make sure that when they move day one, it's not this massive upsetting of what they need to do from a day-to-day operation. Yeah. So in terms, Nick, of companies that are expanding, that are raising funding, that are on the phone looking for new space, what are some of those subsets of science that are growing strongly now? And perhaps some of those have been boosted post-COVID-19. Are there particular areas that you're most excited about or that are having a lot of momentum behind them now in the States? At a macro level, 
we're going to continue to see that gene cell therapy, advanced technology manufacturing continue to grow. The COVID vaccine was between Pfizer and Moderna were both mRNA type products. Now that those have been cleared and are being used today, we're going to see more modalities like that being used for commercial product. And what that means in practice is essentially that platform can be used to solve other diseases. We might end up with an mRNA solution, for example, to particular types of cancer. Correct. And to that point, I will say this, you know, at least here in the States, the FDA released guidance the same week of the news of Silicon Valley Bank for new guidance for new drugs specifically geared towards oncology, right? So I really think over the next year or so, we're going to see quite a bit of oncology, R&D discovery, and possibly preclinical based on just pure timeline become more common again. You know, we've gone through stretches of rare diseases and MS and, you know, certain types of diseases, and those aren't going to go away. It's just, you know, if you look at it historically, there are a little bit of peaks and valleys in terms of what we rush to look for based on some new discovery or new development based on human genome or wherever that discovery comes from. So I think even diabetes is going to come back based on the new platform and new modalities that we've just endured based on COVID. And in terms of the actual space they'd require, is that going to change? Is it the same sort of space? You know, there'll be people listening to this thinking, okay, I kind of understand some of what's being discussed here in terms of using an mRNA platform to solve cancer. But what does that look like in terms of a building? And does that building need to be any different depending on the source of disease it's solving, or is it all the same? It could be a little bit different depending on what the science and how the tenant is getting to the... Try and explain in layman's terms what some of those differences might be to an uninformed individual. A lot of gene and cell therapy today is based on biology, right? So very basic biosafety cabinets, some very small quantities of solvents and mixed gases, compressed air, nitrogen, etc., to find the solution they're looking for. mRNA and some synthetic biology, which is under the umbrella of advanced therapies, are more chemistry-based. So you have higher volumes of solvents that would be in your space because you're creating a synthetic those types of spaces require the same systems, but at a greater quantity. So meaning more air or more power than what is being delivered today from a real estate perspective. Those are really historically, the majority of them are built more towards a biology subset than a chemistry subset. And those chemistry spaces, they're gonna look and feel at the end of the day the same, but the mechanicals and all of the supporting utilities in the walls, those are going to be different. Mm. It's really fascinating to get under the skin of it. Stepping back to an investment perspective, I'm guessing at the end of the day, it all comes down to an IRR, right? It all comes down to what your revenue is versus what your costs are up front. To what degree do certain types of products perform better than others because clearly 
with all of these buildings, there's a huge amount of additional operational cost versus a traditional commercial office just because of all of the security procedures, the regulated issues, the air pressure, whatever it might be, right? The pure power consumption alone is going to be tremendous. How, as an investor, do you try and foresee these costs, manage risk, work out what good looks like and assess the return level for something where there are so many complex moving parts? This is a very, very layered question. So what I would say to you from an R&D perspective, and I'm going to keep going back to that because the two major categories are very, very different in terms of how you look at them. From an R&D perspective, that is traditionally an eight to five, depending on the complexity of your operation, it may be closer to 24-7. However, what typically happens is less regulated space than if you were in a clean room. We have a goal of net zero. We have a corporate initiative and life science falls underneath that, right? It's a corporate initiative that we're working towards. The initiative in how we get to that end result for these two different product lines may be different, but they'll end up at the same opportunity. It is a focus of tenants today to have a good building that functions not only for them, but for the environment, that is something that we look at, right? So to give you an example, things that we look at within our buildings is office spaces. If it's purely an eight to five and it's a sunny day, you know, we have sun sensors, tone down the lights so you don't have to pay. You're not wasting those types of dollars from an operational standpoint and from a tenant perspective, if there's natural light, people want natural light. So why have those light burning through? You know, same thing with an HVAC approach on an R&D. Maybe you slow down the office units in the evening when there's no one there and have the R&D spaces continue to run, but at a reduced rate, right? Like that could be an option based on the types of uses by floor, right? Every tenant's going to have a certain level of requirement, but we customize that. So it's maximized for the best rate of return and operational function. Now, fast forward, you go over to the GMP space. Those are completely different, right? You may have energy recovery units and reuse gray water for toilet water. Like they're very different. But the HVAC can't be modified in a GMP space because it's regulated. You have to maintain that at all times at the same rate. So to give you an example, you're driving 60 mile an hour on a highway. No matter what your gas level is, you cannot change the speed. So you either have to continue to recharge your car via solar, you know, however you're recharging or filling up your car. This is the plot from the next Keanu Reeves film. Yes, it's continuous. It's a continuous loop, especially in a GMP, it's regulated. You must continue at 60 mile an hour forever and always until someone has approved it to turn off. So how plausible is it that those sorts of buildings will be able to check that net zero box, given that you know, you can't just turn the lights down or you can't just turn the HVAC off. Yeah, so you're correct. You can turn the lights off in the office area for the non-regulated space. You can do... Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. But the non-regulated space is small beer, really, compared to drug medical device manufacturing. A few people tapping on laptops doesn't even 
get on the field, does it really, in terms of energy consumption and environmental impact? Right. But you're using a different type of HVAC approach as if you were on an R&D space, right? So an R&D space is historically once through air. So you bring it in from the atmosphere, you condition it, it feeds the space, and it goes back out to the atmosphere after cleaned through filters. Some GMP spaces, that's reconditioned and recirculated continuously. So you're not requiring such a large cooling load over and over again. Those are the types of approaches to reduce your energy consumption. Yeah, yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. One more question I wanted to ask really was, what are some of the things that Brits can learn as the UK sector developing labs and campuses starts to shift forward over the next years? We've got some major investors, many of them from North America, embedded here in the States, obviously BGO, your partnership with Mission Street, Blackstone's here, Harrison Street's here, UK institutions like Cambridge University, Oxford University have got joint ventures. We had the boss of Oxford University Developments on recently, and global investors like Australian Super are JVing with British Land on their Canada Water site in Southeast London. That's got an element of life sciences to it. What are some of the things that people developing these sites in Britain can learn, can borrow, can steal, and can do the same or do differently from some of what you've seen across North America? First of all, before we get into the real estate, I would say people are the most important, the scientists, right? So to give you an example, Boston has a employee shortage that is well into the five digits, right? So we have more life science jobs than we do people right now. So housing and life sciences are very much correlated to each other. At a macro level, that is probably the most important, especially from the three major markets. What I would say, scratching and clawing a little bit further down is making sure the network between the medical institutions and the education institutions and the private sector are continuing to feed into one another. To give you an example, San Francisco, California, and Massachusetts have these groups that MassBio, for an example, or Biocom, those types of companies are really, really based on supporting the private sector to make sure that those life science companies get what they need because they are very, very focused on making sure that they're successful from a people strategy standpoint, from an equipment and logistics and raw material standpoint. Those are very, very important. And when you're running a lab and running a company, both can seem a little overwhelming at the same time. And if you tack on moving onto that, if you're a small enough company, a scientist is the person that's moving the company, which is very, very hard to do. So that would be what I would say in terms of supporting the industry is making sure the meds and eds and an institute of that supports the industry. Now, what I would say from a real estate perspective is obviously it's best to be as close as you can to meds and eds, but it's very, very important to make sure that the companies are supported, right? Understanding the science of which 
are coming out of Oxford or coming out of certain institutions to make sure that it's really what they need to grow. Real estate in the life science is really a service-based resource. We have to support the science and not ourselves, candidly. No, that's a great way of summing it up. And I think this probably is the most detailed and informed podcast we've done on this subject. So thank you for being such a great guest. The only other question left on anyone's lips, Nick, is as an Italian-American, what is your view on some of that San Franciscan lab-grown meat? I've tried it. <laughs> Actually, I've tried the impossible meatballs. And I will tell you, I will never... Would your grandmother touch them? I wouldn't tell her, first of all. Uh, <laughs> second of all, if they didn't tell me, I don't know if I would know. Oh, that's a sort of backhanded endorsement. If they just said we had meatballs, I would have never known. So I was actually pretty impressed because I thought my heritage would pick off the differences. And I will say that it was not a difference unless because they told me, candidly. Okay, well, that's a personal shout out to Impossible Me, an endorsement for Nick, not necessarily an endorsement from BGO, but we'll leave it there. And Nick Cassaro, Vice President life science development at bgo at bentle greenock absolutely wonderful chat brilliantly detailed overview of the lab space really good to see you and look forward to catching up with you very soon and some of the other podcasts that i mentioned during the chat that we've had over the last year stuart grant from art group we had oud on just a short while ago and others we've had as well with jll and pioneer group and we'll link to all of those in the article alongside this. I've been Andrew Teacher. I'm Managing Director for Real Estate and ESG at Montford, host of PropCast. And you can continue listening. You can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts from. Do subscribe, do share, do send us comments and suggestions for guests. We're always grateful to receive those. Thanks very much for listening. and We'll see you again very soon.